This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest wi-fi access for customers bt's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy whatever your business bt's got your back search bt's got your back hello this is the red box podcast i'm matt chorley welcome along uh, thank you for all of your uh, messages about yesterday's episode actually about uh, read all about it's really interesting talking about political uh, magazines. Right, coming up on today's episode, Boris Johnson heading to Washington to meet Joe Biden. He's going on the train. Apparently they're going to bond over a love of trains, which is a good excuse to basically spend all day listening to Love Train. Uh, so in our big thing on the podcast today, we are going to get some tips on how do you woo a president from a former British ambassador to Washington, Sir Kim Darrick. Will Marshall, a former advisor to Bill Clinton, gives us the American uh, side of the story too. So that's coming up in just a moment. But first, it's Tuesday, so it must be time for this. Meet the Cerberus of columnists, the Janus of journalism, and the ultimate political portmanteau of opinion. Finkelvich with Daniel Finkelstein and David Aronovich on Times Radio. Never not silly. Never not silly that. Yes, it's that time of the week where we get to speak to Daniel Finkelstein. He's here in the studio. Morning, Danny. Good morning. And David Aronovich, who's beaming in from space. Morning, David. Good morning. Yes, did you know that we are Emma Raducanu's and Dr Sarah Gilbert's favourite section of any radio programme? Have you made that up? No, no, it's a complete lie, but Boris Johnson is going to Washington today, so I thought I'd kind of get in there first. <laughs> well, we'll take it. We'll clip that out. We'll just take out the little, the first bit, put it on social media. And, uh, well, I look forward, I look forward to that, that rigging endorsement. Actually, when I was in Chorley at the weekend, people did, uh, on Friday, people did say they liked Finkelvich. So there we are. Did they? Yeah. Did they? Yeah. Do you know what they say in Aron- you know what they say in Aronovich? <laughs> <laughs> and if you and if you travel from Aronovich to Finkelstein by train, they all they all love us. They so talk everyone a little all, else. Every, they talk all the them. passengers yeah. from Aronovich to Finkelstein on a train is t- definitely at least forty eight hours in a closed carriage in freezing snow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but look what happens when you open it. Yeah, at least, as long as you've got your Times Radio app uh, along the way, you'll be absolutely fine. Um, well, let's talk about Boris Johnson then going to Washington. Um, what do you... Uh, are we getting overly excited about this, David? 
Well, I, what I was interested in, and, and, and again, as ever, I, I, I want to provoke Danny into some of his <laughs> recollections because I really enjoy them um, uh, and, uh, and reflections. But what I was thinking about when Boris Johnson said, our relationships with America are better than they've ever been, blah, 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 and all this kind of stuff. I was, and I was wondering, who is that for? When we do this kind of big kind of boost about our relationships with the United, US president and so on, make these great big announcements, the US president knows what our relationships with America are, and we and the British government knows. So what is all this stuff for? And that's why I wanted to ask Danny, who is this aimed at convincing all this kind of ridiculous um, uh, over-the-top hype that we get every single time? Is it for the, is it for the Daily Mail? Is it for the time? Who's it for? <laughs> well, look, it is partly a political point. Uh, at the moment, in particular, with the government having based its policy on leaving the European Union, it needs to be able to say it has a strong relationship with the United States on which our security uh, relationships all depend. Uh, and it can't say that if it... If find it difficult to say that after uh, Donald Trump has left and Joe Biden's arrived. So there is a political point uh, to be made. But it's also probably written into their diplomatic briefs. I know that the, the United States presidents are told they have to use certain kind of language about special relationships or the British will be annoyed. Uh, and so it's, a, you know, it's, a, it's one of those things where both sides are trying to fulfil the expectation of the others in diplomatic language that may no longer be uh, very up to date. And when Boris Johnson says it's the best relationship for, was it decades, he said? I, I was sort of thinking, I mean, clearly, Theresa, his immediate predecessors, Theresa May and Donald Trump, apart from holding hands, did not get on hugely well. <laughs> Yes. Uh, but there were periods where David Cameron and Barack Obama got on pretty well. Yeah. I mean, if you go a bit further back, Tony Blair and George Bush famously got on possibly rather too well. My attempt to get Theresa to open up about a meeting with uh, Donald Trump will not count as one of the highlights of my conversational success. <laughs> Let's put it that way. Um, the, uh, and, and I indeed, mean, you could have probably ended with your attempt to get Theresa May to open up. <laughs> he uh, did indeed. He did indeed get hold of that. our hand because he doesn't like going down steps. Yes. Uh, and, and that was indeed the reason. I mean, she did tell me that much, at least. And um, so, uh, yes, th- there was... There were rarely a greater mismatch than between the temperament of Theresa May and that of Donald Trump. It wasn't surprising that that uh, didn't work. But it was much more tricky with Boris Johnson and Donald Trump because uh, in, the one, in one way we were reliant on the relationship with the United States after Brexit. And uh, he, he knows that Donald Trump both saw Boris Johnson as a potential ally and is incredibly touchy about any criticism. And yet himself, as he's expressed in the past thinks that Donald Trump's an idiot. Uh, and he said that you know, often before. Uh, so it was quite a delicate task, actually, uh, the relationship. And the relationship with Joe Biden is, is although on the surface it looks more difficult, is in fact easier. And in terms of what's on the um, uh, agenda uh, for them, David, it does feel like there's a whole... You could range whether you know, it's still sorting out Afghanistan, the response to coronavirus, uh, China... Uh, Russia. I mean, Russia today, there's been another reminder in the news um, on uh, Alexander Litvinenko and uh, this, um, the European Court of Human Rights has found that uh, Russia was responsible for the killing of Alexander Litvinenko. Um, Are Britain and America still allies on all this stuff in the way that, that perhaps they were in the past, whether it was Thatcher and Reagan or Blair and Bush? Well, this is always a very good question. So when we had the AUKUS submarine deal and so on, which caused um, 
some trouble, obviously, um, in France with the French feeling very much that they, I think, I think they are saying that they were lied to, actually, as far, as far as I can kind of interpret. I have no idea whether that's true or not, but that's certainly, but that's certainly what they're saying. Um, we got a big shock over Afghanistan, which was strange in a way, because we were told right the way back in April that uh, this is what Biden was going to do. And I think we all kind of believe, and we discussed this before, you, you me and Danny, I think, I think they believe that the Americans somehow knew something that they didn't about how it was likely to proceed, and then it was uh, catastrophic. And the danger has always been, and the perception has always been, that America would turn away, as it had done in the period leading up to 1940, for example, from European interests and from, uh, let's say, being the champion of democracy um, uh, to being very, um, looking very internally, or at least very regionally. At that point, it was Latin America and so on. And now it's the Pacific. And bizarrely, really, Britain is trying to pose itself now as a kind of Pacific nation uh, now that it's out of the EU. Well, it is a kind of bizarre thing, you know, so so we're now kind of incredibly concerned at taking on China with Australia and America, despite the fact we are nowhere near the South China Sea. I mean, really a long way away from the South China Sea. <laughs> I think, I think it might be a, a legacy of Dominic Raab's grasp of geography, possibly. <laughs> One of the things, David, you asked me for sort of recollections about it, and and... One of the people that uh, people that, that, that prime ministers are trying to impress when they talk about the United States and special relationship is themselves. There's no question. <laughs> there's no question that, that that going to the United States appeals to the kind of West Wing uh, fan uh, in all of them. And I do know. I do know. David Cameron. David Cameron said to me that when he appeared in the in the Rose Garden, giving that speech from the podium, was one of the few moments when he looked out on himself as being pri- as prime minister and thought, "My goodness, how did I get?" to being standing here uh, and I think visits to the United States do bring that out simply because of the uh, amount of sort of uh, cultural output that surrounds the White House and the presidency yeah. and the grandilo- and the grandiloquence of it I mean it you know I mean you visited the White House I did once or interviewed uh, George Bush back in 2007 and the whole kind of business of it is incredibly um I wouldn't say quite intimidating, but it is imposing. And if, unless you're very care, unless you're very careful, I mean, it's the obverse of what uh, you're saying about David Cameron. You can get kind of quite carried away with this stuff um, <laughs> and think and think that it always must necessarily correspond to a complete capacity to order the world, whereas actually there are limitations there. And I suppose, but at a time when um, global Britain is Boris Johnson's sort of big thing and trying to reassure himself, reassure his own MPs that Britain is still a thing. Uh, it, it's almost, you know, the, the, the yacht and all that and the, the trade deals, but the um, actually rubbing shoulders as an equal with the actual President of the United States in the actual <laughs> White House, is that's all part of the, the sort of rebuilding the, the brand of Britain post-Brexit. Look, and it? there's no question that the partnerships between presidents and prime ministers have often been quite strategically significant in, you know, in the history of our independent nuclear deterrent, the, the relationship between Macmillan and Kennedy, the relationship between uh, Thatcher and Reagan, uh, the, you know, and between Blair and Bush, obviously. Uh, and it's interesting that, it, that, you know, the examples I've cited, they're not the same party, the same grouping or the same, you know, end of the political spectrum. And it may be that um, Boris Johnson, as I said, finds a relationship with Joe Biden, whom he doesn't think mad, um, uh, although Joe Biden might not um, think him a, a political titan, is easier than the relationship he had with Donald Trump. 
uh, you, well, I touched on trade a bit there. And uh, David, you've you've been sort of rootling around in the old tweets of the new international trade secretary, Anne-Marie well, Trevelyan. Actually, I've not been rootling around <laughs> in them. Um, but um, uh, what's happened is that she, as trade secretary... They have been now, rootled. Um, they have been a tiny bit rootled. Uh, and and that, in a way, that's what I want to kind of come to, what kind of constitutes uh, this. Um, back in 2010 and 2012, um, Anne-Marie Trevelyan, MP for Berwick, was sending out a whole lot of tweets saying that climate change didn't exist, wasn't happening, was a load of rubbish, and people, you know, the people who said it was were were deluded. Okay, spool on a little bit, and now this mat uh, this spring, she's going around saying all these terrible weather events are all a result of climate change. Got to do something about it. You know, get your fingers out, etc. So, not unsurprisingly, somebody just kind of measured up the two and said, "Yeah, but back in 2012, this is what you you were saying." Anyway, her response to it was this. Um, you can, if you like, she said, go around excavating 20-year-old uh, tweets, which are 20-year-old articles and tweets, which are uh, not exactly helpful to the climate cause, etc. But when the facts change, I change my mind. That's essentially what she said. And every bit of that was nonsense. I mean, it was just kind of absolute nonsense. It wasn't 20 years ago. It was nine years ago. Um, you didn't have to ask. You didn't have to be Basil Brown or Sutton Who to stick in the Google Anne Marie Trevelyan and climate change. That was kind of pretty easy. You know, it's not going to. You know, it's not a ten-year uh, assault on a piece of ground in in in, in the East Midlands um, uh, that you need to do that. But finally, it was the just the chutzpah of saying, "When the facts change, I change my mind." When the whole point is, the facts haven't changed. You've changed your mind because you were totally wrong. And now you've got to convince people, like the Australians, that they're totally wrong now. And the best way of doing it, frankly, is to say, I got it wrong before. But no, she can't. She, people, politicians just can't do that. And that's one of the things I also want to take up with Danny. What is the problem with going back and say, you know, that thing I said in the past was a load of nonsense, etc. I was misguided. I was taken more by the wrong kind of people. I didn't properly look at the evidence. I'm sorry, but this is what I think now. I, I completely agree with what you've said. The, the reason why people don't do that is because we're is because of the, what psychologists call consistency and commitment. People don't like people changing their mind weirdly, even though they like the fact that they've reached a new position that they prefer. Um, they don't like inconsistency, and so other people people try to pretend that they haven't been inconsistent and try to square off what they're saying now with what they said before, which she clearly can't. It's very interesting to me. I mean, obviously, what you say about the past is very interesting. It's also very interesting that that she's taking that position now, that the orthodoxy in that part of the right has changed sufficiently that she can't maintain a position that, uh, you know, 10 years ago people were quite tempted by uh, and that um, it now doesn't go along with their politics. It's not where the Prime Minister is, for example. Yeah. Uh, I'm really interested by that. I think it represents a, a, a real step forward of triumph in the argument. A bit like, you know, I saw happen in the Tory party on gay rights, a sudden shift where what had previously been unthinkable, unsayable, suddenly became the political consensus um, and, you know, and it, and it and a much better one. Um, so I completely agree with what you've said so far, but I think there's an additional point, which is we should also welcome the position that she's taken now. Um, I'm, I've got... 
I notice that she's made this change in mind. I've got absolutely no interest in pursuing her on this because what matters is that she's right now. <laughs> um, no, I'm serious. You know that you're, no, you're not. I, agree. I don't disagree with anything you've said. But the important thing is not. I don't want to increase the price of two politicians of shifting from uh, the psychological price and the political price of shifting from stupid positions to, to positions I regard as better ones. I want them no. to make that as cheap as possible. So, um, frankly, I, I shrug my shoulders at her not particularly convincing move from one to the other, but it, there's a reason why you chose that as an item rather than me. But I th- what, I, what I was struck by is that um, looking at the Guardian write-up of this story about Anne-Marie Trevally, because the, 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 the old tweets, one of them said, we aren't getting hotter, global warming isn't actually happening, it was to do with the campaign against wind farms. Uh, another said, clear evidence the ice caps aren't melting after all to counter those doom mongers and global warming fanatics. So there's no, there's no doubt in the content. The Guardian wrote them up on the basis of the Labour Party uh, um, digging them out. At no point did it mention in this Guardian story, I don't think, that in between those tweets and her becoming the, the international trade agent, she's been Deputy COP26 minister. Yeah. She's been so. Um, and I've, you know, I've had conversations with Amy Trevelyan. She is quite clearly, she, this isn't a sort of cynical political move. She has clearly changed her mind and she is completely committed to the climate change. Yeah. Uh, I mean, David's right to be, to be annoyed. I mean, it is, it is an annoying feature it, of human beings. But just say, I, um, and in a way, it's a slightly more compelling political argument, isn't it? Um, if she actually said, I we, got it wrong. We all pretend we want people to apologise and say we get it wrong. The reason we push people to do that is to humiliate them, not because we actually want them to do it. We think in ourselves we really want them to say that, but actually, Actually, uh, we want them to say that. In, in, the Guardian wanted to say that in order to make Anne-Marie Trevelyan look silly, which she was, by the way, and she wants to resist it because she'd be accepting that she was silly, which she doesn't want to do. Well, right? I, I and what actually... I'm more concerned about is, is she right now? Um, we don't actually... We, we pretend that we want people to come clean, and I think actually she'd spend the yeah. rest of her time apologising for her mistakes it's... the moment she acknowledged them. So no, I no, can you're, see you're... why she doesn't do it. But, she, th- but you're not you're, wrong, uh... David. No, no. Well, and you're not wrong either. So this is really, this is yes. really awful conversation. So you're not wrong either. You're not. You're We're not, not being the Cerberus of columnists, David. I don't think. Uh, gospel according to St Matthew, which is that you welcome the sheep back into the fold more than the ninety who are already there, etc. Although the ninety already there get a bit pissed off about it because you know welcoming that sheep. David, back you've and, done and it again. It. You've sworn in this item, and the last. That's time, not swearing. That's last, not swearing. The last. That's time not swearing. The last time you did it, I, I ticked you off. You said there's no children listening. And I saw my nieces a couple of weeks ago and they said we were listening. Daddy was listening to the radio. And, and we David Aronovich said. And, and, the, and, and the man swore. The man swore. Oh, they did. They but, said the word, didn't they? Come so what on, you need to do now, David, <laughs> is you have. Word. What you need to do now, David, is apologise for the mistake that you made last time. <laughs> <laughs> you need to admit you were wrong in the past in what you said, David. I, I, I admit that Times Radio has a rule which I seem to have transgressed. That's exactly what Anne Marie um, Trevelyan would exactly. have said. You are the Anne Marie Trevelyan of Times Absolutely. Radio. Absolutely. Knowing fully well that your nieces use that expression all the time. No, they don't. Uh, They're like eight, nine, and ten. <laughs> oh come on, Matt! What are you on? See, there you go. Yeah, anyway, yeah, anyway yeah, you know yeah. your niece is better. You know your niece is better. Anyway, the point I was going to make is um, <laughs> uh, about about the, the reason why I differ very slightly is because persuasion has to be made on polities which hold the kind of position that Trevelyan did hold ten years ago. Yes, exactly. Right now. So it, it, I'm it, talking about the Australian government. Her and conversion I think becomes, might actually have some value in that case, rather but, than it being and, a yeah, I, issue. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I think you were right to say that. Danny Fink started David Aronovich then. Of course, you can read them in the Times every week. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. And right now, you get your first month for three. Coming up, 
uh, what Boris Johnson should do as he heads to Washington. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Red Box Podcast. Now we're crossing the Atlantic. Yeah, it's all about the love train. We're talking Boris Johnson and Joe Biden meeting in Washington later, asking what gifts should they exchange. Uh, Tom says a homemade double-decker bus. Boris Johnson should give to Joe Biden. Uh, somebody else pointed out, actually, that Boris now claiming he loves trains, when we all thought previously uh, he loved buses. Uh, Colin says, you mean Boris Johnson is betraying his first love, buses? How very uncharacteristic of him. Uh, Mark says, any train of thought from those two is bound to have a replacement bus service on. Big fan of that. Thank you very much. And uh, Johnny says, uh, a signed DVD of Derek Thomas, the tank engine. Derek Thomas is a Conservative MP. That is possibly too niche, even for me, Johnny. Anyway, keep those coming in. 87212, start your message of the word Times. You can tweet me at Times Radio. What should they exchange when they meet later on? Uh, and now we're going to slightly park the uh, Motown music. Uh, and we're going to go in-depth... Yes, we cross the Atlantic to discuss this meeting between Boris Johnson and Joe Biden at the White House. Expected around, I think, about nine o'clock UK time today. Now, the special relationship may have come under strain recently, not least with uh, the approach to Afghanistan. But don't worry, Boris Johnson has told reporters travelling with him that he and Joe Biden have plenty in common. There we are. Uh, yes, they're big fans of trains, as Joe Biden has memorably, memorably demonstrated. I literally, literally every single day that I was in the United States Senate, got the, these, these either the 728, it became the 732, and or and got home on. If I got lucky, I got the I got the metro that left the last one left at six, or I got the 730 coming home. Oh, is he finished? He's finished. What a fascinating... There's nothing more interesting than somebody describing their commute, Joe. Uh, 
Uh, but then Boris Johnson, he is right. He's a big fan of trains, as he demonstrated when trying out driving a tube train simulator. All aboard. Mind the gap. Mind the gap. Stand clear of the gates. Here we go. It's the breaking. It's the breaking thing that he has trouble with. Yes, so will their shared love of the choo-choo trains begin a new chapter for UK-US relations? Well, Boris Johnson seems to have conceded already that a trade deal is a long way off. You might say that Britain's at the back of the queue, uh, but we don't say that anymore. Joe Biden is instead putting the US's commitment to fighting climate change at the top of the agenda for their talks today. Uh, there's also obviously the news that broke overnight that the US is going to open up to uh, foreign travellers uh, it's a bit of a shock announcement, that one. In a moment, I'm going to speak to uh, Sir Kim Dowick, who was the British ambassador to the United States, famously when Donald Trump was in office. Uh, but first, Sarah Baxter from the Sunday Times tells us what to expect. It wasn't that long ago that Boris Johnson was hailed as Britain Trump by the President of the United States. But that guy is checked out of the White House, for the time being, at any rate. Orcs, you might say. Or should that be AUKUS? The new Indo-Pacific strategic alliance between Australia, the US and Britain has shown there is a wisp of breath left in the old special relationship. The flexible Johnson took a decision early on to curry favour with Joe Biden and lavished attention on him at the G7 summit in Cornwall. And Biden? Well, he's old enough to regard Britain as America's best ally. And according to Boris, they also have one big thing in common. They're both train nuts. As world leaders mill around New York for the UN General Assembly, Biden has paid Johnson the compliment of inviting him to the White House. Ahead of their meeting, he's lifting the one-sided ban on vaccinated British travellers entering America. An offer he's also extended to all EU countries, but let's not dwell on that. And Biden also appears willing to reach into his pockets for a few billion dollars to spend on reducing carbon emissions – Welcome news for Boris ahead of the Glasgow summit on climate change. Disagreements over the pullout from Afghanistan, rows about the Northern Irish Protocol, the frustrating lack of a trade deal between the US and post-Brexit Britain. These things will be raised and smoothed over. There has been a lot of sherpering by diplomats in advance of the meeting to make sure the two men appear best pals. I can vividly recall Bill Clinton's sense of bewilderment and pique when Tony Blair dropped him like a hotcake once he was out of office and began making eyes at the Republican, George W. Bush. Well, Boris is no different. It's Trump who and hello, Joe. And if Trump were ever to come back, well, that's a problem for another day. So back there from the Sunday Times giving us her take on uh, the meeting between Joe Biden and Boris Johnson later. Well, how does the British Prime Minister uh, prepare for a meeting in the Oval Office? Let's speak to Kim Dark, Lord Dark, who was the British Ambassador to the United States between 2016 and 2019, and joins me now. Good morning, Kim. Morning. How are you? I'm very good. I'm very good. Um, Let's talk sort of in general terms first of all, but talk about the specific issue that you had with uh, a British uh, Prime Minister going to the Oval Office. How significant is this? The, the, Boris Johnson is in New York anyway for the UN General Assembly, but he's got the invite to the White House. What should it, should we read? Are we reading too much into that? Um, I think that a little too much is being read into it, but they didn't have to meet in the White House. They could have met at uh, uh, in New York, whether at one of the consulates or in a hotel somewhere. So... Um, so it's significant that Biden has invited him to the uh, to the White House, 
Um, Theresa May got in a week after inauguration, back in 2016, 2017. Um, this is uh, um, you know, eight months or so into, into Biden's presidency, but it's, uh, it's a welcome invite and, and it should be taken as an indication that, that although there are ideological differences, this isn't faction Reagan or Blair and Clinton, um, they come from different sides of the political spectrum, that this US administration wants a, a strong relationship with the UK. And let's talk about what what the sort of the process of all this. What um, is Boris Johnson told? What's the sort of the diplomatic service uh, doing to prepare him for this meeting, um, and the, the involvement of the of the British ambassador in that? Yeah, what you will have is quite a lot of talk across the normal channels. In part, the embassy and the ambassador in Washington to uh, the administration mostly to the National Security Advisor sitting in the White House, and in part, capital to capital, number 10 to, to the White House. Agreement on the management of the meeting, the choreography, the press conference, whether there's going to be a, a lunch or a dinner attached to it, who is going to be on each delegation, so the numbers match up, but also, most importantly, the agenda for the meeting. And... The meeting between Theresa May and, um, and Donald Trump, I mean, there was an agenda agreed, but they were very new in office and new in government. They didn't really stick to it, to be frank. Um, I think it'll be much more structured with, um, with Biden and Johnson. They'll have agreed the order of the, what points they want to cover, the order in which they cover them, and they'll go through those points in the course of the meeting, trying to complete the whole thing in the, uh, in the allotted time. Okay, let's talk about your your particular experience. You became the U.S. ambassador uh, at the beginning of 2016, which obviously all was well, uh, quiet in the world. Uh, at the beginning of 2016, we had the Brexit vote. Then Donald Trump became uh, U.S. president. You were the you were the ambassador when uh, Theresa May made her famous trip to the White House uh, to meet Donald Trump. What was that like? Trying to you know, there's all this focus on the special relationship and trying to foster good relations. How do you go about approaching that with someone like Theresa May and Donald Trump, who couldn't be more diametrically opposed in almost every way, both personally, politically, their approach to almost everything. Yeah. Matt, it became clear in the course of the next year or two that these two weren't really going to connect on a kind of personal level. But you didn't know that at the time. And the Trump team were very new into the White House. So... We weren't able to prepare in the same kind of depth as I think Johnson and Biden will have done. Um, and we, as I say, we sort of had an agenda, but it wasn't clear whether President would, um, President Trump would stick to it. And what they arranged was a 15 to 20 minute, what we call a tete-a-tete, uh, which is just the two of them chatting, getting to know one another right at the beginning of the meeting. And then there was the plenary session where we officials came in and listened. And then there was a lunch after that. So the whole thing took you know, two and a half hours um, or so. I doubt that the, um, the Johnson-Biden meeting will, will be quite that long. Um, uh, and it was, it was a week after, after they'd all got into the White House. So they knew their way around the building um, and were just finding their way on how to do this kind of thing. So it was, it was different. This will be a very slick, um, well-organised, well-structured, 
um, diplomatic uh, uh, summit between the two of them. There's uh, listeners will will remember your your. Uh, dramatic departure uh, from Washington after those diplomatic cables were released. Uh, the, the, some of the messages you've been sending back to the British government, your assessment on the Trump administration is inept and insecure and so on, um, were, were were leaked. Donald Trump got very cross about that and then uh, you uh, resigned. Is there a sense that normality is returning to Washington, do you think? I think so. I think so. But remember that uh, the former president is still very much a political presence on the scene. It's not like one of these two-term presidents who then, maximum two terms allowed under the US system, who then retire to construct their presidential library. And Donald Trump is hinting very actively that he might run again in 2024, which he's entitled to do. So um, I'm not sure it feels it feels completely normal now. Plus, we're not in normal times, man. I mean, the pandemic, um, uh, withdrawal from Afghanistan, the um, energy crisis, which I guess you know will be will be global. Prices have gone up for everyone, um, although the American have have some of their own own supplies. So um, these are crisis ridden times, and so it doesn't feel like. Uh, the tranquility of some of the encounters that have happened in the past. Um, and so, what what would be the what would be a, a diplomatic win for Boris Johnson uh, coming out when he leaves the White House uh, later today? Do you think no. he is not going to get? I think uh, and this has been well telegraphed in advance. Anything on trade deals? A number of us have been predicting for a while that there's never going, there isn't going to be an early trade deal, um, and. Uh, I think they can talk about uh, about their joint commitment to vaccinate the world, um, which, if we want to really tackle the pandemic, is going to be going to be essential. But if you're looking for a win, we are hosting COP26, the climate change summit, in November. That is crucial to delivering the kind of global effort that we need to tackle climate change, and no one can doubt anymore that climate change is is a real crisis approaching approaching down the line to us. And what's crucial for the success of that meeting that we are hosting is a big enough fund to help the developing world get its, um, uh, I mean, adapt for, for climate change, reduce its uh, CO2 emissions. Otherwise, the developing world can't afford to do that. And how much the Americans contribute to that fund is absolutely critical to the success or otherwise of the, of the summit. So if you get some sort of promise undertaking from Joe Biden, I think he may keep his figure for his speech to the UN. Uh, so I'm not sure when the figure will come out. But if there is a promise of a significantly increased US contribution, then I think the Prime Minister can claim that as a win. And there's something that might unlock the challenge of this, of this summit. Just fun. I don't know if you've read uh, William Hague in the Times today. He's obviously, former Foreign Secretary, he sort of as he lays out some advice to Liz Truss, the new Foreign Secretary, uh, and he says he you know he wishes her well, and this is an advice. But I think he describes himself as an old timer. But he sort of goes through some of the ways that he, he seems to think that maybe the diplomatic service, the Foreign Office, isn't working quite right. You know, being caught off guard by what happened in Afghanistan. Uh, trying to bring together the Foreign Office, international development, um, that's causing some problems too. Others have commented on the fact that uh, Britain seems to be completely blindsided by the, the announcement on the on the lifting of the travel ban by, by the United States. Having been in and around the, the diplomatic service for a long time, how what state is the Foreign Office and the British 
diplomatic service in right now? Is it functioning properly? Look, it's facing big, big challenges. It's facing the whole change in our international posture that comes from Brexit. It's facing the challenge, which is a big one, of integrating what was DFID, International Development Department, into, into France. And it's facing the same difficulties as all institutions are in coping with the pandemic and in you know, a time when there, are, when there are challenges mounting all around the world. I think it's still full of extraordinarily talented people. Um, I wish good luck to the new, new Foreign Secretary. But these are, these are very difficult times. And you know, if you're in the Foreign Office, if you don't anticipate everything perfectly, you know, it's kind of all your fault. But I don't think anyone expected the Taliban to take control uh, in Afghanistan quite as quickly as they did. I don't think there's any evidence that any intelligence service or any foreign ministry um, around the West anticipated that. Um, as for the travel ban, I don't know whether we knew in advance, but sooner or later the US were going to lift the travel ban for their own interests as well as for ours, and it's very good news uh, for us. And uh, you know, whether it was communicated in advance, I'm not sure, but timing it for the Johnson-Biden summit tells you that they wanted a positive signal about the relationship to come out just before that summit. So that timing was interesting and a positive move. Uh, just finally, given the, the, these, uh, these uh, things do matter, what would you, if you were still the ambassador, what would you recommend as, as an exchange of gifts between Boris Johnson and Joe Biden? <laughs> that's a really, that's a, that's a tricky question to throw. Um, <laughs> uh, just the time. I would just say of Joe Biden that he is um, a man with um, a deep sense of history and he's been around a long, long time. And I think he's the kind of man to whom you should give something that has historical connotations and you know, some sort of um, symbol from of British-American relations uh, and how it's developed, particularly over the last four decades. And Joe Biden was a senator for a long, long time. And something that, that, that will symbolise you know, the last, last um, two decades of UK-US relations and some of the things we've done together would be appropriate. Well, we're not, we, we, want, we wait to see what is uh, what's in the uh, the cargo hold, uh, or no, the, the travel, the the, 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 um, the hand luggage. Really, he's going on the train. He's going on the train. Uh, really good to speak to you, uh, Kim Dar- Lord Darrick, there, uh, former British ambassador to the United States, uh, now chairing Best of Britain as well, uh, the campaign uh, group. Let's now find out uh, how these talks will be viewed from an American perspective. Will Marshall is a former advisor to Bill Clinton, and I asked him what advice he'd give to Boris Johnson when sitting down with the U.S. president. If I were in that position, I would say, do what you're doing now. I mean, uh, Mr. Johnson is uh, emphasizing climate change. Uh, he, he's here uh, ahead of the COP meeting, COP26 meeting. And, uh, and I think that would be an, uh, an easy ground for uh, affinities with uh, President Biden, who's very much focused on methane control, on COP26, on climate change. So I think they would have no problem starting a, a, a constructive conversation on that score. You know, it might get more difficult when we're talking about trade, when we're talking about the impact of Brexit on Northern Ireland. So there are so other topics that would be maybe a, a little more difficult. But, um, you know, I think that this, uh, this, this relationship is there to be rebuilt. We have, you know, still by our lights, a new president 
uh, who is uh, quite different than his predecessor. So I think there's a, a grounds for maybe starting over, uh, not only you know with Great Britain but also with Europe. Uh, and clearly, in light of recent events, there's uh, a need to, uh, for this president to pay particular attention to mending fences there. You, you mentioned that Joe Biden is is very different to his predecessor, but there's a, there's a slight feeling taking hold, I think, in the UK that actually he might look very different to Donald Trump, but he might use very you know, less colourful language. But in policy terms, he seems quite similar. He, he went ahead with the withdrawal from. Uh, Afghanistan. Uh, there's a lot more. Folk, the the it, it doesn't necessarily use the same America first rhetoric of Donald Trump, but there seems to be a sort of much more focus on domestic issues and, and not being the sort of the policeman of the world the, the previous presidents have, have have done. Is that a fair characterization of Joe Biden? Do you think? Well, not entirely. Um, look, I understand there's confusion uh, when Joe Biden talks about a foreign policy for the middle class. Of course, in the United States. Uh, and some of his particular policies uh, by American at home and, you know, a very strong uh, emphasis on rebuilding the prosperity of working and middle class Americans. That's, that you keep in mind that that's his, his consuming preoccupation right now with the big, big legislative packages up before Congress. And clearly, you know, the White House has fallen down on the job of consultation with allies. Uh, the president went to uh, Europe in June and said America is back. And by that he meant America was back in its old uh, relationship with its uh, transatlantic allies. They wanted to build up the alliance, not tear it down like his predecessor, that he had confidence in it and, uh, and uh, his counterparts in Europe. Um, and, you know, so there's confusion on that score, I grant you, because uh, there was insufficient consultation around the precip- the precipitation of Joe Biden's exit from uh, Afghanistan that he wanted to get out was no surprise. He, he said that he was not even in favor of the surge back when he was vice president under Barack Obama. So the the policy goal was not a surprise, but the uh, the haste by which this administration pursued it and the lack of consultation were surprises. And I think. They've got work to do at the White House to uh, rebuild confidence. And, of course, that was uh, now with the flap with France. That, that's even uh, that's also the case with this new uh, AUKUS relationship and the and the submarine deal with Australia, where there was uh, evidently very little consultation, although Secretary of State Tony Blinken says that he tried to reach the French foreign minister before to talk about it. But in any event, they didn't connect. And so um, it, it seems like another uh, another um, setback from the point of view of close communications with allies. So there's work to be done there. But I don't think that that uh, changes the substance of Joe Biden's outlook on the world. He is a known commodity. He's been in uh, public life since the late 1960s in the United States, and people pretty much know that he's an internationalist and an Atlanticist. But he's also making adjustments that the American public is demanding about our commitments overseas, a more selective approach, and trying to you know, cut losses, as he saw it in Afghanistan, where there just isn't any uh, more appetite in the United States for continued military political engagement there. And what about the the sort of the language and the way that that successive British prime ministers have have sought to 
maybe emulate the language of uh, of US presidents. I mean, at the moment, Boris Johnson's using Build Back Better, uh, which uh, I think Joe Biden used. For, well, there's some debate over who used it first, but they both seem to be using it actually in the same way that in the past, uh, you, you know, Bill Clinton uh, had the New Democrats when, uh, you know, Tony Blair had New Labour. You can even go right back to sort of Harold Wilson trying to emulate uh, what JFK was saying. Um, how important is that? Is it superficial, but actually this this sort of sense of shared endeavour and shared language of vocabulary, does that does that matter to help it to build build a common relationship? It could. I mean, I think that, uh, you know, Joe Biden certainly thinks uh, build back better is his slogan, but that's OK. Uh, he, uh, uh, he he will take uh, support, uh, you know, uh, uh, from from good friends like Great Britain on that score. And uh, so, yeah, that that is, you know, he, he's when he was in Europe, the president, you know, proposed a kind of global build back better. Uh, initiative to counter China's uh, Belt and Road Initiative. So uh, the idea of a concerted effort by Western liberal democracies to counter rising Chinese influence in the world is something that uh, Joe Biden is uh, intensely interested in and a a topic that uh, Prime Minister Johnson could uh, find, you know, a, a very fruitful one, I think, with this president. That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio. We bring you the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcasts from. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.